Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I am your host, Jordan Puga. And I'm Paul Keelan. And today we have a special episode of Cinematic Underdogs because we're doing a three-way conversation with the one and only Don Shanahan. So welcome to the podcast, Don. Thank you, fellas. It's nice to be here again. Yeah. So thanks for coming on. You were on before. We had a great time discussing Moneyball. Uh, There's a few similarities between Moneyball I hope to get into. One is a frugal manager or That's GM, true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've noticed, mm-hmm. and uh, skipping on the sodas. But anyways, you are a big fan of Slapshot. It was in your top five. Where was it? I don't remember exactly what number. I think it might have been right at five. got to make me dig on that list. But I it, like right. I think, yeah, I think right at the fifth spot. Yeah, sorry to put you on the spot. I know you no, said it was okay. kind, of, kind of interchangeable there. And sorry, we don't keep track of any of these lists we make anyways on this podcast. No. They're up in the air. Like, they're just categories. Right. I don't remember any of my underdogs. Enough, it's four or five, two, no. It's four or five, guaranteed. Yeah, and we're, like Jordan said, we're really instinctive and intuitive, and we have very short-term memories here, so it doesn't matter. And you also wrote a kick-ass article on 25YL. I loved it. I've read it a few times, and it's called Slapshot Still Scores Goals. So everyone, yeah. check that out. I did not write that headline. <laughs> okay. I don't want to talk crap about whoever wrote it, but okay. I was going to give a suggestion that it should have been called Slapshot Still Scores. Yeah. Just the I, pun I, of that would be perfect yeah. for this film, right? Yeah. Perfect, perfect but I, um, I'll, I'll kind of tip behind, behind the curtain. There was a lot of talk of like, hey, how about the, you know, the, the sexual tension of this time or the, the, the frivolity of this movie? And like, can you say that in a headline? And yeah, I... It got changed. I, I said something completely different, but I don't even remember what it was. But yeah, it was definitely racier than scoring goals. So yeah, yeah, I would have. I, I would have think you would be more tongue in cheek because inside the article you are very cheeky in the best oh, yeah. way. I mean, you you have to read it. I, I can't applaud it enough. There's so many lines I was just writing down and cracking up about. Uh, they're just gems one after the other, like slobber knocker buffet. Uh-huh. Burly ballet, which is definitely it's burly, burly ballet. Yeah, <laughs> dentally challenged Neanderthals with sticks. Just one after the other. You have great, great vocabulary, and also like a really idiosyncratic sense of like proverbs and axioms that are like mm-hmm. old school that feel very seventies. But that's awesome, and you like take yeah. them out of the closet, and they feel fresh, as fresh as ever. So. For the occasion, it's a fun time to talk about that movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, and also you you get into the ideas of the movie. It's a lot of fun and it's it's a blast. But before we get into that, we're going to set the scene of when this film came out, which is February 18th, 1977. So Mm -hmm. Jordan, correct me. Is this the oldest film we've now done on this podcast? Yes. This is the oldest film we've done. So we're... Yeah, we're st- 1978 would be the lowest far as we've gone back, although we've done a few period pieces in the 70s we've covered. So I'm sure we'll be referencing that with some, um, what was that Marky Mark one we did? Invincible, I'm thinking, goes comes to mind in terms of period pieces in this in this era. So I'm sure we'll reference that as well. Yeah, I, I was thinking of that as well when I watched this and comparing the two and how different they felt. Although, but, just carry on what you said earlier, I didn't make the Moneyball connection until you guys said that. Now my gears are turning in my head. I wasn't looking at this right? through all lens, even though we covered that. Mm-hmm. But that does apply, like a lot of what we talked about, I think does apply perfectly to this movie as well. Um, when we get to those like GM spots and those GM behind the scenes aspects of this narrative. Yeah, and how they tried to cut corners economically with their own players all the time. I just like, oh, that's so Moneyball right there. So setting the scene, it is actually kind of difficult. Box Office Mojo's data gets really murky starting in 
I believe it or not, this very time period. So I, it was going great. And then I, I was going backwards chronologically on Box Office Mojo. And I get to around June or May 1977, right when Star Wars A New Hope comes out. And I guess they believe that cinema didn't exist before then or just <laughs> very- Money-making Star Wars it, yeah. changed everything. <laughs> yeah. Very vaguely existed. And so you just get like month end results. And so in the month of February, we had, according to them, only two films. I'm sure a few more came out, but we had Fraternity Row, which none of us have seen. We talked briefly about this, Um, but it sounds kind of interesting because it's dealing with like Gamma Nu Pi fraternity, like shenanigans. It's dealing with pledging with hazing. And it, it kind of evoked, at least in the synopsis, Animal House, which I'll get into later because this is very much, I think, a precursor to the, the film Animal House, which comes out only one year later. It's already in the air. This, this hangout type film, the shenanigans film, um, what Slapshot does, which is cool, is it turns it into a sport. And I think it makes it more raw. So we've okay. also, yeah, we've also had some uh, other films come out um, and I'll send it over to you, Don. What did you find in this time period? So we're going throughout all of early 1977. Yeah, a standout one for me is kind of the same, you know, freewheeling kind of vibe that is Slapshot is Smokey and the Bandit. You know, Burt Reynolds at, at this time period was, man, that was, a, you know, a sex symbol, uh, that kind of man's man kind of star where chicks dug him, guys dug him. And it was, he was just the universal I know a lot of people put Matthew McConaughey on that level of like the by gender, you know, acclaim or, or just appeal. But man, I mean, Matthew McConaughey does not exist without Burt Reynolds being Texas cool way before him. And in a movie like Smoking the Bandit, you just have that wild and crazy fun. And it's it's definitely what I, from what I read and what I remember, it's definitely Burt Reynolds kind of making a choice to just be like, you know, I could I can go make a formal film or I can just go have fun. And he picked fun. And you can tell just every second he goes that he has fun. A clip I got was um uh, was from Pauline Kael of the New Yorker, you know, famous famous film critic. She said, um, "It's only vanity keeping the young star from Sean Connery level respectability." In a sometimes but not always self-effacing, I should say, present day interview, uh, Reynolds says he turned down a "Get Your Tuxedo Out" bonafide acting role to star in Bandit instead for his buddy Hal Needham. At the same time, he also kind of tried to get some acclaim by posing nude for. Cosmo just as Deliverance was coming out. So yeah, like I said, he was more the rebel and the fun guy and just Matthew McConaughey to me is the comp that people always put and he seems today so clean cut. You don't see Matthew McConaughey doing paparazzi level stuff. You don't see him laying on a bearskin rug nude in Cosmo, but that's something Bert would do. And I'm trying to think of a, of a modern comparison of someone who would be that ballsy and crazy. And the person I think of is, is legit crazy and it's like Shia LaBeouf, but I, I can't put Burt Reynolds anywhere near Shia LaBeouf or vice versa. That's super interesting. So I have a few things to talk about here. Um, and as I do it, I want to try to get Jordan to get his gears thinking. Jordan, try to think about anyone you could imagine today that might be like the Burt Reynolds or the Matthew McConaughey. I mean, Matthew McConaughey is still definitely very much in the like center of Hollywood, even though I read today he's probably definitely running for governor of Texas now. Oh, uh, it's definitely, definitely now. Yeah, like he's in the lead in all of the polls by like 15%. So we're going to see a new Arnold, I guess, uh, yeah. Matthew McConaughey. But I think Matthew McConaughey is like the true uniter of all of America person. I think he's going to like <laughs> be the person to like bring us all together. But anyways. Yeah, mine would be The Rock. 
The Rock too. He'd the be Rock is, yeah, is the great yeah. uniter because I think McConaughey can unite Texas until they find out he's a nice liberal man, and then then it's all downhill. Then it's that Hollywood guy, Matt McConaughey. Uh, he's not real Texas, and he'll try every I feel real like the Texas Rock, yeah. he can. Yeah. I feel yeah. like The Rock's been in your home so long. Like I know. He embodies that maleness on across all aspects. And he yeah, he also has a pretty liberal mindset as well. But For sure. But what I loved about the Matthew McConaughey reference was a lot of Slapshot brought and evoked uh, memories of like Dazed and Confused because I really sure. felt like it had early Linklater all over it. And I know this is another one of your favorites, Don, because I think you gave it a shout out in your top five. Or maybe it was just on your letterbox list, but everybody wants some. Oh, um, yeah. Great which sports is, movie. Yeah, which is uh, in a peripheral sports movie, but definitely a sports movie. And uh, I feel like that uh, is very much inspired or influenced, I would say, more by Slapshot. It's a hangout movie. It's definitely... Yeah, and it's populated mostly with people who aren't super big stars. I mean, I, when you take away Paul Newman, Michael Ankian didn't do that much. And then you have a cast of character actors and then some sidebar, like kind of hockey players who just happen to pass a camera test on a couple of yeah. occasions. And then when you get to everybody wants some, you know, I know, um, you know, Blake Jenner, Blake Jenner's not a big star. Tyler Hockland's not a big star. And you just collected just young, cool dudes. Some of them who legit can play baseball, like Tyler, who's playing Superman now, which I love because he's awesome as Superman. But um, he was a college baseball player who's legit on the field. And then you got a, just a bunch of dudes who just hang out, you know, bust each other's chops, kind of grab an archetype that they from the costume cabinet and just have fun. And I feel like you have that here in Slapshot because you have that, you know, the foreigners, you got two foreigners. One guy talks, one guy doesn't between the goalie. And then Billy Child's the guy who's got the double girlfriends. It never talks on movie, but just bags two blondes. But then you have the, yeah, right. And then you have the guy who's just always talking about snatch and just trying to go out and score. And then you have the guy who's married, but a horn dog, you know, pimp wearing hat guy. And then you have the unhappily married guy who just wants to go out and play, you know, like he's, if anything, Michael Ankian in Slapshot is the Tyler Hoechlin of everybody wants him. He's like the team captain. He's like, guys, can we just go out and fucking play you know that kind of thing and then and then the the, the stir that you know the guy that stirs the drink is paul and that's probably the one thing that everybody wants him is probably missing is not that you needed a big star but you kind of had to have at least one can play on both sides be the you know the the rouser of everything and it can't be the rookie who just walks into campus so sorry blake jenner yeah sorry blake jenner that was awesome the, that uh, juxtaposition you did of characters went above and beyond any comparison i was making i was only seeing the like broadest strokes but it's very good and i want to ask everyone a question is days and confused and i know it's not but could it be a sports movie it's a football movie right the last day of school movie like high the... scores with a paddle is that a sport is that what we're calling yeah, it? yeah well you got the little league baseball stuff baseball stuff where he gets beat oh, up yeah. on the baseball mount. i don't think so it, it's yeah. a high school movie coming of age high school film for sure mm-hmm. yeah more american graffiti more fast times at richmond high good comps there yeah yeah, yeah, because even Fast Times at Richmond High has that like sports in the background thing, but it doesn't come into play. And yeah, yeah, that's an overreach for sure. So Jordan, were you able to find a Burt Reynolds, uh, Matthew McConaughey? Yeah. No, I was thinking maybe like a Johnny Depp in terms of edginess, but now I don't know. Now he's got the ba- the public backlash against him where he's untouchable. Right? But in terms of like sex appeal and like crossover and like affability of personality and roles. I'm not comparing them as actors as their craft. I'm talking about their appeal beyond beyond the right. film. I'm trying to think of modern day, like like you said, kind of like man's man, but. I can't put Robert Downey Jr. on there no. because like yeah. he's kind of a smarmy nerd, sarcastic guy. Not, not that Reynolds wasn't, 
But like Robert Downey Jr. is not going to go lay on a bearskin rug in Cosmo nude, you know? Yeah. Chris Pratt would do it, but it'd be silly and not sexy. Uh-huh. Chris Hemsworth would do it and it'd still be silly and probably a whole lot of sexy, but I still wouldn't see him doing it. He's still a, a married dad too. He's not a swinging single yeah. guy like Bird. So I don't know who that is either. I think we have to meditate on this one a little bit more. Tom Hardy? That, that was do anything for you? Today was maybe Tom Hardy? Yeah. But he's too, he's super serious where yeah. like, like Bert winks and smiles every chance he gets on that camera. Yeah, Bert seems like a dude you can sit around like he like he like Newman, you have a beer with him. Like Newman's yeah. going on Slapshot to go hang out with the dudes. One of the best like performance about Newman's one of the best parts about Newman's performance is how much of like a genuine hockey player he comes off. And he comes off because he generally liked to go get drunk with a lot of the extras who are just hockey players. Right. Like, you know, like the Hanson brothers who were like the Carlson brothers and then yeah. Dave Hanson, you know. Yeah. I mean, um, I I guess when George Clooney's not dressed up to the nines being you know the the silver-haired fox of foxiness he's that guy you could probably go have a beer with too but he's gonna have he's gonna have the nicest beer in the world at the projects bar in the world where the old george clooney might have been able to pull this off but then he wasn't a physical specimen of like stud muffinness in any kind of way the way bert was so yeah although personally i think jason momoa right now is a dude i'd want to go have a drink that's a bird rental that's a good one base like yeah but even he doesn't have stratosphere a-list hits the way bird does so but he's got that 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 air and that that personality and that badassness so Oh yeah, that could be all the dudes in Hollywood just want to go drink and like ride their motorcycles. All the all the big brothers you want to hang out with, pretty much. Well, here I'll be the crazy one. Is there a female comp? That's a cool like, question. We, we live in a world where we have badass girls who will get on Instagram, put their you know, put their put their business and their bodies out there yeah. and look cool doing it and have a good time. Like, is this is this Miley Cyrus? Ah, oh, Miley Cyrus is close. Miley Very Cyrus close. will swing nude on a wrecking ball and then yeah. go have fun and then still make movies and still be as wholesome as can be playing that guitar yeah. and doing country level lyrics. I really dig the way she like re defined herself too recently and with the whole kind of, yeah yeah the, say, guys i would say angelina jolie then at least for my generation that, that's a all the one. boundaries of yeah. sexiness and but she never hit comedy this hard though no whereas, whereas miley will go on snl and have and have a hooting good time you know yeah and she's also got that smoky voice and that southern oh, yeah. vibe and her dad's a country western star and burt reynolds has the mustache and the country <laughs> western vibes mm-hmm. uh, the other person i would say definitely for me is a weird one but it's johnny knoxville because sure that's a guy who would, you you would imagine throwing back like a six pack. Oh yeah, on the set, and Burt Reynolds gives that vibe. And reading the Smokey and the Bandit synopsis, I saw it I think a long time ago, like when I was like seventeen or eighteen. I'm giving my age away a bit, but it's like all about drinking Coors beer at a truck show, right? Like oh, yeah. some some dude tries to get Burt Reynolds to get this beer in Texas and drive it to Georgia. So it's a purely jocular premise of mm-hmm. just getting wasted and it's definitely in the south right texas and georgia so i'm just i was trying to fixate on like actors from the south who have a grittiness who might mm-hmm. drink like even michael shannon might work for me but he's a little Man, too he's super intense. serious yeah he, he's my guy he's a chicago guy not a southern uh, you know yeah but he gives yeah. that vibe sometimes like in take shelter jeff nichols yeah. is great he can one. play yeah. country though yeah. yeah and also i heard he's hilarious i was listening to ryan johnson talk about knives out and he was talking about how he let his actors ad lib and michael mm-hmm. shannon he said just killed it he, yeah. he made everyone die so anyways fun story i've met and hung out and drank with michael shannon oh you got to tell this story real quick all right a little bit. so all right, short version of the story. Yeah. So it's the Chicago International Film Festival. He's there. They bring the press to a, a posh hotel bar somewhere. And uh, we, were, we got a press only, no photographs and stuff like that, but meet and greet with Michael Shannon and Michael Stuhlbarg, 
who were um, promoting uh, The Shape of Water, which was the centerpiece, the centerpiece film of that year's festival. And uh, it was just, yeah, so it's like, I don't know, 20 of us press people, some of the PR handlers, and then Michael Shannon and Michael Stubart drinking with us for two hours, uh, having to have a foo-foo food and stuff like that. And Shannon being a Chicagoan, like just he was there and he was extremely tired. Like he was just worked and which kind of is Michael Shannon. Like he just looks exhausted every time you see him. Um, oh, and Michael Stubark, super formal drinking what he's drinking and, and, and comparing notes on film and all that. And Michael just comes in. All he wants to do is talk about Chicago. Like, you know, the old days of when he hung out here, or he slept on somebody's couch here. Or like I live in a suburb of Forest Park where there's a, there's a candy factory out here, right in like three blocks from my house. And it's um pan Ferrera candy factory. They make like the trolley gummy peachy things and things like that. Lemonhead and all that and he's like uh, yeah 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 I spent a summer like mopping floor I don't know what his story was he's like I spent a summer mopping floors there you out in Forest Park you still there like he knows like there's not a stitch of the city he <laughs> forgets at all being a big time Hollywood guy all these years and just and yeah everyone had a question for me and you just you just you just stand there with your drink and just watch him talk just some small minutiae story of some sliver of Chicago that was his for a night or a thing that's so and, rad. And he just stayed out all night. Like he, those two came in to kind of introduce the film, do a panel afterwards. Um, and then if you were a super big timer in terms of the VIPs of like, if you paid as a festival member, they had another after party, like in a, in more of a hotel banquet room upstairs. And uh, I remember um, I hung around after the movie just cause I hung around with the critics and hang around like that. And, and then I'm, I'm outside the theater kind of walking to go home and he comes walking out with like the entourage of people in a limo to just keep on drinking and keep on going. And you can just hear him. He's like, and he's looking for some like dive bar. Like it's so it's such and such place open. Let's just go there guys. You know, he's, he's where it's at. It's around the corner. Right. Right. And we're in like downtown Chicago with like nice things. He's ready to go to like the wiener circle <laughs> to get like hot dogs and oh, beers. Yeah. But that's Michael Shannon. I mean, cool stuff there. Your stories, man. I think they're selling his need to be in Slapshot, like if it's ever remade. Actually. Oh, he, you know what? Like as this surly older guy, now that he's at the age he is, he could, he could play that. And it'd be nice to see him not play, to see him do straight comedy. Because he's been a bit of a professional movie villain for the better part of the last half decade, right? Like I know he gets some sentimental parts here and there, but he's just so super serious where it'd be nice to see him ham it up for the sake of ham and not just be the the crazy guy absolutely yeah and he's terrifying so he'd be a great enforcer too and but oh, yeah he, 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 could tell, he could tell he could, he could drink with anyone so mm-hmm. switching gears jordan what did you find from the early 70s uh, 77 sorry specifically uh, what movie did you find from this period all right so in terms of ones i've actually seen was star wars was it's one which you've all one. seen over here right. so i don't know how much to revisit on that one but um actually since we got don as our guest like Star Wars fan at all? Uh, a, a, a small bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, I did the same thing for kind of like researching what the 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 frontline opinion was of it back in the day. Like it obviously it's Rotten Tomatoes ranking comes up pretty good. One semi-detracting person to it, I kind of referenced her a little bit at the opening here is um classic film critic Pauline Kale of the New York New York Times. And you know, obviously the the lead female of the of the whole genre of this kind of writing. Uh, her opening sentence of her review says this. It says, for young audiences, Star Wars is like getting a box of Cracker Jack, which is all prizes. Yet it's a film that's totally uninterested in anything that doesn't connect with the mass audience. There's no breather in the picture, no lyricism. The only attempt at beauty is the double sunset. It's enjoyable on its own terms, but it's exhausting too. Like taking a pack of kids to the circus. 
And that was her take right. on Star Wars, which we all put on a pedestal. It's and here she is, though, like, like going, Psh. <laughs> sorry, but her words kind of ring true for like the uh, remakes, though. In a weird oh, way. She's totally. Calling, like the, the dilemma we're in now because Star Wars, you know, is transcendent. Yeah. And now it's it's almost opposite. Everyone wants, everyone forgot about all the cool popcorn stuff and is trying to make too many connections. And that, I, those that's connections a, can't satisfy everyone, it seems like. But these uh, new movies are, are movies I wish Eber would have saw, you know, because I, I, you know, he he gave Star Wars a four, you know, four mm-hmm. out of four, loved it. And I mean, obviously he saw the prequels in his era and time, but I'm pretty sure he passed. Yeah. Oh, 14. Like he never saw Force Awakens in the next two. So I, I'd be curious what he would feel about that. Like he normally seems like the kind of guy from his, you know, from his writings and stuff that welcomes nostalgia, but isn't super duper penalist about it i guess i should say but i wonder by the time he would get to the end of these three and go guys what are we doing here yeah i'd be curious yeah and uh, that cracker jack line by pauline kale is probably one of the most famous critical uh i guess attacks i've ever that that line is super famous she has a few very famous lines though oh yeah yeah she can dig man yeah she Mm -hmm. she's known for being an iconic class and i could definitely see her just railing against star wars because she genuinely probably disliked it which is which is why you love her it's because it's like it comes from a place of authenticity always whether whether you agree or not another film i found just to throw it out there that came out this around this time was annie hall it's another comedy like Slapshot, but it's so different from Slapshot that it makes an interesting, I guess, comparison or contrast. It's one of the greatest comedies of all time. And I think for a certain subsection, a very small subsection of people, Slapshot is up there too. It, it, it has some really uh, huge accolades that I was kind of fascinated to come across where it's on many, many lists of like the best you know sports films of all time it topped maxim's magazine list as the best guy movie of all time i know that's high praise yeah right? pretty crazy right and yeah. uh, entertainment weekly slotted it as its number 31 cult film uh i believe this was from your review don that you, you i you did found this yet yeah these, oh. are some re- these are some research points i I've, i definitely had to include you bet yeah, I'm stealing them out of your mouth. <laughs> Be my but, guest. Yeah. I'm stealing them from other places. Don't worry. Yeah. It's just uh, the, the vicious cycle of echoing and reverberation. So anyways, uh, I, let's kind of transition. I think we've set the scene. We got an idea yeah. of some of these 70s films. I mean, it was coming around the same time as Annie Hall and Star Wars and so forth. So why do you think this film, Slapshot, it's a small film in terms of its budget. It's got a lead that's pretty huge, right, with Newman. Mm-hmm. And he's working with a director that's a that had a lot of success with them. But why do you think it's resonated for so many years and still resonates? I'm gonna actually throw this to Jordan because I know he's a big, big hockey aficionado. So I want to start it off with that little hockey perspective. And why do you think Slapshot is still so popular today? I'm gonna quote actually Dave Hansen. Uh, he was on Spit and Chicklets talking to the boys on that podcast, and this is his quote where he says, "I said Slapshot could be considered a documentary if you just strip some parts." As he says, everything that happened. In in Slapshot happened when I was playing in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And so we just give a little context. And I know, uh, Dan, you covered this in your article briefly. This was written by Nancy Dowd, mm-hmm. who is a sister of a minor league player who actually plays Ogie Oglethorpe in the in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that was her brother, uh, Ned Dowd, who played in the minor league team in Jamestown. Just for just for some like context. So a lot of what happened basically is her just, he told her a story of when they're playing, like he had a crazy ass manager who was trying to sell the team. There's these three weird brothers who, you know, who actually were freaks, you know, and she didn't believe it. And so she came to hang out with him and the boys and she just observed. And then she wrote this screenplay. And that's what we get in Slapshot. And so that really does resonate through, through the audience, I think, of how authentic 
the locker room is, the bar room scenes are. Um, the bus is for me just absolute like travel hockey, the gambling, everything's mm-hmm. gamble. Anything, anything can be betted on at any moment. Doesn't know about it from the TV to, you know, anything can be gambled on. It's, it has everything of, of, you know, being with the boys. Like why you say when you're with the hockey, you know, we're going to hang with the boys. And you say, they say mm-hmm. that so much in this movie too. And that just really, I think resonates with hockey players as moviegoers. I think there's, when you look at hockey players and their favorite movie, it's always Happy Gilmore. It's always on there, even though it's not actually a hockey movie. That's usually mm-hmm. on there because of the vulgarity. It's what Adam Sandler brings. Adam Sandler brings the hockey intimidation into, uh, into golf, right? And Slapshot really is an exploration of that hyper-masculine world. Um, but interestingly, through a lot of the lenses, through the female characters, and they really want deconstructing it, which is what I really appreciate about it when you watch it a little retrospectively. But going back to why it resonates with hockey players, I think it, it is, it's, it's, a, it's a gritty look at that life of wanting to play at the pro level, not make a lot of money, but it's, you know, hockey is life for them. And you got to see the way that takes a toll on the women and how supportive the women still are of it, despite it tearing them apart, the way that drags the team down and brings them back up. It has everything that you want in a sports movie. Um, and this is the sports movie I think plants a lot of those seeds that we've, you know, obviously we've been deconstructing for however long we've been doing this. So I think it resonates on on the on that locker room level where it's so vulgar and you know not, not, you don't get that vulgarity anymore. I was just watching Puck Hogs the other night, which is a good movie. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that one. It's on available on Prime. Not. But like hockey movies, I'd recommend it. I'd recommend checking it out, especially after watching Slapshot. I definitely get, I'd suggest giving that giving that a watch just for the sake of comparison. But just to digress, of that aspect of that locker room banter, that jargon, if you will, Slapshot nails it because it's coming from, you know, actual hockey players. I'm going to give like one example of a scene that really stuck out to me just from a little background thing on that interview. The scene where um, Paul Newman's just trying to take his pregame nap. The yeah. most hockey thing ever. Anyone who was hockey players, they sleep. Well, back in the day, you used to drink, eat, eat steak, put down a six pack, and then you'd have your pregame nap, right? In the scene, you know, Paul Newman's just trying to take his nap. He gets a phone call from the ex-player, ex-Y player. Uh, what's his name? His wife comes and move in with him. So the first time uh, Paul Newman went to go meet Dave Hansen, they were, the guys were just in town. I believe he was in Philadelphia. I think he was playing for the Flyers. I could be wrong on that. Um, anyways, he's in town. They're playing. And they, have, they know that the movie guys are in town. They don't know they're going to drop by. So anyways, Dave Hansen is taking his pregame nap. And he's in his boxer is his roommate, who is uh, Bruce Boudreaux for hockey fans, who's a coach of Anaheim, Caps, you know, Minnesota. Boudreaux's actually an extra in the film, too. Boudreaux's his roommate, and Boudreaux's sleeping, doesn't wake up, and he gets a knocking on the door. And so he's trying to take his pre-day nap, so Dave Hansen gets up and gets it, and it's Paul Newman. And he's like, oh, you know, you know Paul Newman shakes his hand. He's like, you know, I'm here with the production guys. They want to see what a hockey player's, uh, you know, what his house looks like. Is it cool we get a look? He's like, I'll give a shit what you guys can do. Dude, come in here. I'm taking my pregame nap. I'm going back to sleep. Before he turns around, he's like, wait, wait, before you go back to sleep, Paul Newman says, do you got any beers? Can I just kind of sit around drinking beers on six packs of the thing? I'm going to sleep. And that's how he was introduced to Paul Newman, which how about that? is perfect in that scene. Because if you remember the scene, Paul Newman's in his boxers. He's just trying to get to sleep. And it's really just, it's about that, that, that sanctity of the pregame nap. And like, mm-hmm. it's just, it's displayed so well. So it's kind of a, it's funny for the sake of interruptive comedy. But also, if you're like a hockey player, you know, you just want to sleep because it affects the way you play. That that little moment of authenticity just really stands out to me. No, I, I got to follow Jordan. I think what keeps this movie so high up on the things in terms of ranks and loves is, is yeah, that hyper masculinity. You know, we are three dudes sitting here talking about doodly things that we likely could not get away with doing today. So this movie becomes that time capsule of, oh my gosh, look what, look what dudes used to do, you know, and not just in hockey, but also just as guys, you know, just the way, the way they gallivant, the way they go after women, the way that women go after them, the one, you know, the women that hang around. And one of the true credits I didn't realize about this movie until I kind of got dug into the research of coming back to you know, write a review on it was I did not know until doing this review that it was written by a woman. And that's fantastic because through all of this, 
you know, rampant masculinity and homophobia and profanity. There's 176 F words in this movie. All of that was written with just the authenticity in mind of a woman who's a fly on the wall laughing at these knuckleheads. (laughs) Because you can tell that throughout the movie, as much as they're all having fun, none of them not not a single character in this movie you can you really call redemptive or or like really winning anything out of this other than just eking out the chance to go play hockey and be with the dudes like no one here is really winning a a a better place or a better lot in life mm-hmm. they're not winning any girls you know they're, they're obviously you got some reconciliation with a few wives and a few girlfriends and things like that but there's no happy endings coming out of this the, the team still fails the team still is going to close you know mm-hmm. sure they want they got some attendance perks and, and peaks a little bit but nothing's going to come out of this but these guys are going to go spread to the wind and go on and do other teams or just be done and then have to come out with something in life. And I think when I heard about and doing some more research on this, the plan was from the Dowds was to, to have maybe a documentary come out of this, to have this have a documentary feel of like, hey, this is what the behind the scenes surliness of this sport can be. And then when George Roy Hill got a hold of this and Newman got a hold of this, like, no, 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 let's make this a film and make this a comedy. But the fun part about the way they shot this movie is there's no score here. Whereas this is a year after Rock where Bill Conti is orchestrating every little moment and peak and and I don't want to say manipulating audiences, but forming the emotion that is a Rocky movie. This movie isn't Rocky whatsoever. It's lovable losers of a different kind that stay losers. And for as much masculinity and fun as we can laugh at and have, they stay losers. And I think that's a cool thing and a cool truthful thing to come out of a movie that's still to a lot of people probably goes, oh, that's unbelievable. But now it's, this is true. This is, and I say it in the review in other places, Major League and Bull Durham owe this movie dinner and a a case of beer because you wouldn't have those like road movies of like guys and teams and and failing and, you know, falling forward with failure without Slapshot. Not at all. And I like that we are focusing on the documentary aspect because it really is about the Johnstown Jets. So much so that I believe 11 of the players were a part of the movie and the local fans of the Johnstown players were pissed off because they believe it cost them a league championship. The playoffs are going around during filming of this stuff. Exactly. So uh, this is definitely very much rooted in this city too. And I want to bring up Johnstown because I do have a personal tie to this and it is a pretty fascinating one because it is one that I don't talk about too much. It's with my dad and he grew up and was born in Johnstown. And I didn't know this film was set in Johnstown. I didn't have that connection, even though I'd seen it a bunch of times as a kid. Um, And he probably told me, but I probably was being a little, you know, 12 year old brat and just like letting it go one through one ear and out the other. But now I'm fascinated in that as an adult. And I was just eating up every location shot, just trying to imagine this is where my dad grew up because it's such an old gritty American town. And I love that the steel mine, the old drug stores and all of these mm-hmm. very, very um, kind of seedy, but kind of charming uh, Northeastern small town vibes. Uh, I should have known that too, because my grandfather and I believe great grandfather as well, both worked at the steel mill. And so like, this is a very real story for them. What I love too about this so much is these players, unlike any of our other sports films, almost, are not making a lot of money. They are truly blue collar individuals. Their unseemly nature, their vulgarity, their profanity is because they're of a certain socioeconomic class. 
they are just struggling. They are gritting and grinding it out, going on these long bus rides, exhausted, yeah. living in dingy locations. And I just love that about it. It feels so lived in. It feels so just sorted. And that uh, atmosphere seeps through the screen and it really makes you not only feel like you're in the 1970s but like you're in Johnstown, Pennsylvania in the 70s so I see you nodding Jordan yeah I think you have something to say no I was just going to give you numbers because you referenced like how just for numbers sake just because we're talking about how you know the hockey players at the time were not making much so there are extras in this and like to quote again Dave Hansen he said for them this was like a vacation Everyone else is there making a movie. For us, we were getting, they made 200 bucks a week to play hockey. They got 700 bucks a week to shoot the movie. Wow. So just I'll give you another quick take while we talk about this. Give you a sense. He said this is their vacation. So there's a time on the set where this ties into Last Dance, where they're not actors, right? So they spend all day sitting around waiting for their shots, right? Mm-hmm. And so they learned basically that all day long, they don't do anything. So they figured out they can sneak beers into the locker room scenes and get drunk. So a few times they'd be so drunk that they couldn't shoot anything. And so this went on for a while. And so finally Hanson and uh, I think it was John Carlson, if I remember right, I might have which Carlson brother mixed up. They bounced out and kind of like Robin just took off, went to some nearby town to go party. And then the, to, the production crew called them. I think it was the director and said, you guys got two days to get back to town and we're going to send the police to come get you and we're going to sue you guys for halting production. And so they had to get their asses back there otherwise face a lawsuit kind of thing. So Man. it's like that kind of background shenanigans of them still really like bringing that hockey, you know, intimidation mentality to like, they're, they weren't playing a character really. They were just playing themselves pretty much, which again, I think it really shines through, not just with the characters, but with that overall environment small town glory, like glory beyond just the, the dollar sign. Yeah, absolutely. I read too that there was so many behind the scenes pranks, like they just oh. abounded on set and always do practical jokes. <laughs> yeah, I heard Newman too as well. And, you know, they were a bunch of young, carefree, crazy guys, right? Who just kind of like always looking for ways to uh, mess with people. And one one of the anecdotes I particularly loved was uh, the trio surprised Paul Newman by filling his portable sauna with popcorn. <laughs> it just feels like it feels like a kind of jab at Mr. Hollywood in a way because of the popcorn. Yeah. They uh, also put shoelaces on flyer uh, with hair dryers and you know uh, matches and had baby powder sprayed everywhere in the locker room once. It was just oh, nonstop, pranks, dude. Yeah. <laughs> like every every hockey team has that jokester i mean i'm sure oh, yeah. most sports teams has that jokester who you know fucks with your locker when you when everyone's out there yeah it's so quintessential to this to this genre so anyway jordan you mentioned which is fascinating to all of us that uh and don you talked about this nancy dowd is the writer and it's actually one of the very fascinating defenses that you can quickly bring up if you do love this film because you know, throughout the internet in 2021 takes, it's going to be like, oh, this is homophobic and this is misogynistic and this is chauvinistic. I went through Letterboxd and it was that and that and that. But no, this is also anthropological and this is authentic and this is a time capsule. It's a document of the times. And you really uh, definitely tackle that in your article, Don, in which you're, you know, you're saying, you know, this stuff didn't date well, but it was real. Like these are, uh, as, as much as it's fictionalized, right? This is rooted in real research with lived in relationships that inform the text, inform the screenplay. And that comes across. And I think that we all definitely resonate with this film, I think, in different ways, probably, but because of how it just feels more authentic than almost 99% of our sports movies. And oh, yeah, it's like, there's not yeah. a 
I know they're doing the like WWE style antics to the hockey and like, the, like that's the narrative they're going for is like, let's yuck it up and like, just go out with a bang with this, the way this team is going and we'll get an audience and we'll get our, we'll get fame and we'll get beers. We'll get all the things like they're playing to win, but they're really playing to just beat people up and have fun. And at the same time, you know, I, I say it in the review, like the women are the smartest people in this movie. Other people might still watch this movie and and see the language and see the profanity and go, gosh, boy, this is just boys being boys, the movie. And which isn't is problematic nowadays, but they would miss the point that they see of these that the women are not arm candy and they're not post-game conquest, or at least not entirely. You know, you still have these wives. I especially like the Reggie's ex-wife played by Jennifer Warren, where she has a you know a a nice little subplot here of like really trying to shake that the stink of Paul Newman off of her and that cycle of his failure or that, that just never growing up and never letting go and not full Peter Pan complex like other movies, but just she has this whole thing like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to really get a job and go someplace else. And now that the mill's closed and I, I want to get out and not just live in the glory days of this and that. And even when Paul Newman still tries to wink and smile his way into her heart, She's kind of not having it. They're cordial and they're cool to each other. Like maybe divorcees, many divorcees are, but like she is not just immediately enamored by, oh my gosh, I have a stud athlete boyfriend and husband. Whereas other movies, these women would be exactly that just arm candy and cheerleaders tops. So to have these movies and we still have a bit of a bleacher bum wife in here, but not entirely of it. And then when you get to Ned Braden's wife, who is, you know, I don't want to say the villain of the movie at all, but just like, boy, she is just walking descent into everything. You know, she just wants nothing to do with all of the same thing. In a different movie, it's the understanding wife. Or they're going to fight a few times, but boy, the man's going to win that argument every time. She wins that argument every time. Mm-hmm. And that's cool to see. And a woman would write that better than a man in the shows. Definitely. Even going to the, the sex scene. That yeah. builds up to my favorite, most comedic moment where he chirps the goalie about oh, his ex-wife hilarious. being a lesbian, right? He doesn't use those words, but um, that, I mean, the writing of that scene of them exploring her sexuality, him being uncomfortable with it, tying it to the goalie and his viciousness, and then it's used later comedically is, is just, it's so well done, mm-hmm. but it's also very complex. If we're getting, you know, guys and athletes at this time talking about homosexuality and then obviously they weaponize it. He was weaponized throughout the thing, right? He uses as a slight against a manager, I believe, right? You find out mm-hmm. the manager was, was a cross-dresser, right? <laughs> but again, the, the, the authenticity of the language they use to describe these scenarios and them trying to deconstruct these scenarios with this limited language, it's valuable for today's time. I mean, yeah. it's, it's so valuable to understand these conversations and how to get to the next stage of where we're at today. Um, and I feel like you get to see that seeds of that type of exploration in this movie through those scenes. Like you said, all these ones involving strong, not necessarily strong women, but competent women, capable mm-hmm. women, especially the women in the, in the pop, in the gallery, their comments are sharp and they're precise and they're revealing. Like they reveal like, like the, I forget who it is. She reveals her husband doesn't like to fight, but he's the one, I think it's killer. Who's trying to be a fighter. I could be wrong with that. But the, again, they're very precise in their observations and astute. And they're not just, you know, background in this, which we get when in the future of sports movies, pretty much. Yeah, I love the fact that they have both like the male gaze that's very, very prominent and they have a female gaze that's very prominent and both so both aren't necessarily like supposed to be amenable to all audiences. They're not supposed to be like disney by any way. Like yeah. these are very, very explicit adult and uh, unruly, unorthodox perspectives uh, that show you a grittier side of life. And I think that what... I really took from it was that it let boys be boys and, and 
uh, I guess girls be girls if we're going to use, you know, the childhood gendered term. So the other thing that was fascinating too, is I would just jump to the end because we don't care about spoilers and Reggie doesn't end up with Francine. She is like peace. And that is totally realistic and a very powerful move. And it shows that, you know, this guy who is just fitting all the time, he's got a, a ruse to, to try to uh, inspire his team that they're going to be bought out. And he's just kind of this desperate, disagreeable in many ways, human being who also is, you know, flandering with other women and just flippantly treating his wife who he's definitely in uh, already like a separation with. You can tell that they are, they are in bad terms from the get-go. I love the setup of her where she walks into the, I think it's a bar type restaurant and he's hanging out with someone. They're like, Oh, uh, I bet you I can pick that girl up for a dance. Right. And then it takes you a second to realize that they're married. And I love that. It's a brilliant uh, little conceit that they use there. But that works also to set up their characters. They are an estranged couple and he never wins and he shouldn't, right? Uh, it, it, it doesn't make sense. It shouldn't make sense. Is This film is not out to win your heart and make you believe in the greater qualities of humanity. No, it's about to show you a Malou in the most genuine way it can. And it starts also, I want to bookend this, and we have to talk about the start. I think the start is utterly amazing and immediately puts you in. And it happens before anything is said. It starts with our great goalie, who is hilarious. Someone help me out with the name, the Canadian. Denis uh, Lemieux? Yes. And they're a non-actor, talking. you know. Oh, he is a non-actor. Oh, yeah, he's a hockey player, you know. Oh, nice. And they're talking about, you know, the finer things of hockey, right? It's a, it's a famous little uh, bit now. But I love the fact that before they even talk, they're just sitting there. It starts with like seven seconds of dead weight, right? And it just suspends, you know, like what's going on and you're disoriented. It's so avant-garde. It's so indie filmmaking. The, the uh, mic drop that falls off and they're trying to adjust it in time for the camera. And he just gets up and, le- yeah, just real loosey-goosey. Yeah, and that's going to tell you that we are going to show you the behind the scenes. We're going to show you the side that it isn't artifice, the side that isn't performative. Uh, We're going to show you the background stuff. And throughout, we get that. Uh, And they're supposed to do and they have to do a sort of fashion show for their GM because they're just hilarious, hilarious, right? A hilarious concept. And once again, playing with gender. And we could talk about this. And with the striptease at the end, playing with gender and gender Mm -hmm. norms. So it's very aware of this stuff. But you never really see the fashion show almost at all. All you see is the background conversations and debates. And this guy's like, dude, I'm just going to, I'm just going to pull out my private part. I'm just going to pull it out. And then finally you hear the screams when he goes out and you realize he did, which is just very like sensationalistic and provocative in the best way. But I love how they're playing constantly with taboo and gender norms and showing you the underbelly of all these things. So I'll pass it along to everyone wants to go. I just say, Karen, what you said. I like how they're showing why the guys are so driven to the game of hockey. It's because you get to be a kid all the time. And it's mm-hmm. such a big, you know, obviously it carries out throughout this text. Um, I like that, like you said, starting with the fashion show, you know, the kid doesn't want to dress up and they throw a fit. So he takes his cock out. Right? I mean, I mean, there's such, it's so vulgar. And like, again, the, the idea that they don't show it, but mm-hmm. you get the, the pizzazz of the crowd. And it leads into like our next like foray. By the time you get to the Hanson brothers, you understand these are a completely different set of mutants from the mutants. 
and it plays right. so well. You're like, these mutants don't like this mutant, even though, you know, the Hansons would, today the Hansons would consider like indie looking guys, right? Um, but by the time you get to them, they're the weird because they're even more childish. They play with toys, right? And these other, you know, big kids think that the little kids are weird. So it plays so well mm-hmm. of why the, why the Hanson kids are so alienated. So by the time you get to see them finally hit the ice, you know, really just like adds a fireworks to their presentation when they're, when they get their introduction. Uh, but again, the idea of like boyhood, childish madness, I, I like that theme that, that carries out in this. Yeah. And like to see that distilled, like Paul's saying through minimalistic filmmaking, because all right, now there's this, obviously a stunt coordinator that's making the hockey look really good. And that, that cinematographer is not afraid to get out there on the ice and move around and glide with all that. But when it's the, I don't want to say the domestic scenes, but like the scenes that aren't on the ice, there's nothing flashy going on here, but just observing the room. Mm-hmm. And I think about that, like when, like we're saying, like as vulgar as people say this movie is probably just in language alone, it still pulls punches. Like we, we have a topless scene with the, like you said, the lesbian and female exploration, but that's not a super gratuitous scene there it's post-coital and then you know the guy's not wiggling his dick on camera and things like that something tells me which is crazy to think like if someone were to make this movie today they would go too far they would todd phillips this and turn it into the hangover of every possible wild and crazy thing just over amplified and they they would put a zillion more musical needle drops in here and they would put they would over tune all these characters instead of just getting regular dudes to be mm-hmm. regular dudes to stay just meatball instead of a plate full of meatballs yeah. and i think that's where hollywood has failed since then because the r-rated comedy that has grown out of it in the 80s and stuff just went super way too far and they could because movies like this you know walks to the other ones could run but no if you remake this movie today in many ways you kind of have when you have like sean william scott playing goon and things like that and that's the guy who played stifler and road trip and mm-hmm. the, the in movies that aren't afraid to to go all the way with with just further things of sex and depravity so yeah the the grounded nature and the grounded setup of all this just like you said, we believe it because it's not overdone. It's amazing. Yeah. And one of the things also that I found amazing about this film, and I'm going to transition to a kind of a totally different topic. And it's uh, one that's dealing more with the technical aspects is how much clout the people behind this film actually do have. And we've referenced oh, yeah. them loosely already. But, you know, we, we talked about Nancy Dow, right? The next year, she wins original screenplay for Coming, coming home. home. Yeah. Like, like a Vietnam relationship drama, you know? Yeah. Not a not a hockey movie. <laughs> no. George Roy Hill, the director, is coming off the steam. And Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, you mentioned this in your article. The uh, fashions, right? The fashion director is Tom Bronson, who yeah. did First Blood and Beverly Hills Cop. And we also have a two-time Oscar-winning art director with Henry Bernstein, who did The Sting and To Kill a Mockingbird. And why I bring this all up, I don't want to get too much into the X's and O's of the background stuff and the technical stuff, because this really, this movie is more of a mood, but a lot of great minds and visionaries went into this. And so it might feel like it's slapdash and it might feel like it's a flippant juvenile film, but it's anything but. Like this is a well-executed vision all of the looseness is intended. And I, I think that that's also a really crucial thing to, to point out is that, you know, they, they didn't just throw on the camera, which they could have. And if they did, they probably have that intuitive brilliance to be able to capture greatness, but they had intentionality going into this film and they captured something I think that's alive today and it permeates all of the film. Uh, what about the soundtrack? What did you guys think about the soundtrack? I love the soundtrack from the Fleetwood Mac oh, yeah. to the, I like the way it's used, how sparse it is. Mm-hmm. Cause it's only like basically on the bus kind of yeah. scenes. 
And then like when they're playing hockey, you just hear like ice and skating. And even the music is like semi-diegetic. It's like whatever the, the, the you know, the pop hit of the moment is playing. Like the, the song I love is Maxine Nightingale's right back where we started from. And they play like three times in the film. And like yeah. a, a movie today wouldn't do that. They would they would just play it once. They would not dare repeat a song. But if like if that's like the dudes' favorite song, they're probably jamming with it. Because exactly. if you've been around enough locker rooms, that's creatures that have a guy that play the same, you know, amp up music before every game. It's the same four songs in their little, you know, well, it's iPods now, but back then it'd be a tape. Like that's their jam. Yeah. And they're going to play it everywhere they fucking go. And, it, and it's Maxine Nightingale's just little pop ditty, just party song. Yep. And it is, it's the perfect just party bus rolling up song. Because if that's your your WWE entrance music is you just come barging in and Maxine Nightingale, you look like you're having a damn good time. You're not coming into like Metallica or hardcore rap. You, you're walking off the bus to that. And same thing, a song that guys and dudes can just party, drink and have fun with. And it sounds like my I referenced in the article, like Nightingale's song is still to this day, like the victory song for two NHL clubs. Like that's a 1977 song they're playing in 2021 when it's the end of the game and like, Hey, let's go home and have a good time. And it's Maxine Nightingale's silly song from Slapshot playing. <laughs> yeah, I love that song. And I love the scene. I think they're playing Fleetwood Mac at first and then they go to that song when yeah. it's Lily driving in the van with Paul Newman and Ned. And they're just like flooring in that crappy van over those streets. I oh, mean, I know. Yeah. And, and, the, and, the, and the tour bus scenes, right? It's very much like, um, I'm, I'm blanking right now, Cameron Crowe's great film where it's the rock Almost and roll famous. band. Almost yeah. famous. Thank you. The, these are rock and roll guys too, in a way. They're like a, they're like a rock and roll band that never made it big. And so like lives in poverty. They're performers. They're, uh, you know, out for a very dissolute lifestyle. And they're just yeah. trying to survive on the dregs of society so that they can live the way they live. And so love the music. And the other thing that I forgot to bring up for talking about the technicalities was the cinematography. And that was Victor J. Kemper. And before this, he did Dog Day Afternoon. And he also did The Gambler. And right after he did The Jerk, that's a range right there. But mm-hmm. I want to go into the hockey because the hockey is actually shot in a very visceral way. And once again, yeah. I'll throw it to you, Jordan, because you're like a real hockey expert. And I'll throw it to you first. But what did you think about the way they shot the, the actual hockey in this film compared to many of the other films we've seen. Well, I was going to say speed. They capture actual, like, the speed of the game very well with the tight close-ups, particularly the goalie shots. I don't know if, like, if you watch hockey of this era, when you actually watch it, it looks much slower compared to today. There's, that's just the way the game is. But with these sh- close-up shots, the way they really capture the speed, it looks closer to the way the game actually looks today, which is really interesting. It's almost, like, mind-blowing how fast guys skate today. You're right. You know, they, they skate the way a movie in the 70s was edited, right? That's how fast Carl McDavid is. Um, yeah. But anyways, like the way they make the goalie look, though, is perfect in terms of because if you look at goalies at this time, man, goalies at this time were small pads, you know, flopping everywhere. He looks so heroic making some of these saves. And the way, you, the way they convey um, like blue line control with everyone scrambling around him, calling out like you're screening me, like the voices, like, that's hockey. Like the idea mm-hmm. you're hearing, like him giving commands, receiving. And like, you can see the way this is obviously like a predator for like, even like ducks, like another movie we covered, Mighty Ducks. Right. You got to take a lot of these camera techniques and kind of like, I'm going to say refine them, right? Because you kind of mentioned there, there's a lot of music and stuff behind it. They're kind of using yeah. it. It's, it's way more, obviously, because we're working with kids, it's way more um, choreographed. So you get a sense of it, but like, that they're kind of letting them skating around, just kind of capturing what they can capture. And there's this really great scene when you get into the, like the boxes and you see them below still skating behind them. 
and you can still see him playing an actual game and still looks oh, very yeah. convincing. That to me, just the way it stands up still, there's these moments where hockey wasn't actually broadcast the way it is, like what we capture it today, but you can still see like these like seeds of where we get that. So yeah, I think it just, it stands up for sure. It's very innovative. No, I'm with you on the sound for me, you know, like too many sports films overdo the score. So you would have, you know, music to drive the mood of that moment or the tension of that moment. If it's a the offense and defense of, 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 of stalking or not stalking kind of thing. And a movie score would overdo it. But here, man, every every chip, every chop, every dash, every every cut is in there. And and it feels like you just they kind of get the camera out there I, I can only imagine how much footage they have that they they trim down to get to this because you're right it's sharply edited but it's edited to the point where it doesn't feel super choreographed i think to me the most choreographed spots are when when newman is heckling the goalie over the lesbian stuff which where obviously he's moving and hitting the spots but it's but it's but it's within the hockey action of blue line control get to the back like the camera is going to stay on Newman for his little moments of dialogue and screw it around. But the hockey around him feels legitimate. Not just like, like he still has to pay attention. He can't say all of his lines in one thing. He's got to segment it out. Cause in a different movie, you'd have an inexplicable amount of time where a character can just stand around and talk to another character. And that just would not happen. And then the other choreographed things, of course, are just the spots where you have the Hansons doing maliciously awesome things where those things are just, here's a shot buzz by the guy hit him three times, you know? still at the same time like you see their speed of, of coordination all doing that in a hockey game too and something tells me even back then if you got three goons doing that you probably are standing back just going what the hell are those guys doing and they would probably stop and watch and see the malice happen so yeah but yeah. sound sound number one for me no sound is very very in your face and it's because they stripped out the extra diegetic sounds right they just stripped out the the soundtrack and give you the yeah, and can crowd noise isn't there none of that stuff no, it feels very immersive. Uh, what I loved about the hockey was how it was also devoid of your natural arc. Like the score was shown from time to time, but it didn't ever really matter, right? No. The hockey was a circus sideshow to me. It was carnivalesque. It was just a big party. And I love like one game, the major focus or fixation point of the audience is purely like, are they going to hit this opposite player who says at the opening uh, face-off that he drank too much last night and if he gets checked into the boards he's gonna throw up right he's gonna piss himself. Yeah. oh piss himself yeah, yeah. i botched that I'm even better right I don't know. yeah yeah but uh, so you're just like is this dude gonna piss himself the whole time right and the camera is always really low i noticed and moving and it's it's very very fast there's a celerity there's a speed that puts you in the moment and we rarely see goals we see more fights and trash talk and hits than any like good passing or anything like that. Uh, the flow of the games are scattered on purpose. The finesse and grace isn't really there. It's all about entertainment. It's more of like worldwide wrestling than hockey, right? They're there to fill seats. They're there to be heels. They're there to put on a show. And that is our main motive of this team. Yeah. It's not to win. They do want to win in order to hopefully get more money and accrue attention. But first and foremost, they want to fill the seats. I got a question for Jordan here when it comes to the hockey end. Because of this movie's age and, and hockey to me has tremendously changed. Like this is Bush League stuff back in the day where violence and the no helmets was a huge part of it. And I feel like we've had 
two generations of hockey even since then where you got to the refined place where you still had enforcers but everyone kind of wore helmets and played it mm-hmm. safe now you have all finesse hockey and so little glove dropping moments where it's now a, a hardcore elitist level sport where this is two dinosaur generations ago i have to think there's got to be a segment of people now who for as much as this still has endearment for the fun aspect i bet there's got to be a segment that looks down on this movie going that's bullshit hockey definitely is especially like you said now i will say the pandemic has interestingly brought fighting back more into the game no way everyone's forced to play each other now you know there's way more fights because enforcers you know the the idea of rivalries actually come back between franchises so you're actually seeing a few more fights than we used to obviously get broken up a lot quicker than they used to back in the day but yeah there's definitely i think for that reason this movie i think against the new i say amongst the newer generation for sure and those who post fighting, this is, you know, the pentagram of, the, of that movie. Yeah. Even though it's interesting because like the movie does grapple very well, I think, with that dilemma within the text of mm-hmm. where's the place of fighting and spectacle in the sport and like where's that balance? Yeah, that's our- Ned Braden is our, is our Virgil through that underworld there for sure. Yeah, I feel like I like the way it grapples with that because at that, like you said, at that time, that hockey style was very popular, not just in the AHL or the minor leagues. I mean, we're like Broad Street Bullies and all that stuff as well. Mm-hmm. You know, this would be coming after that. That you know, if I could put it that way, like Broadway Bullies make this movie kind of possible that popularized like violent hockey. So yeah, I think today definitely there's a stigma, like as you said, amongst that particular group that this isn't the hockey, this isn't the hockey you want to teach your kids to play. Right. Um, which is kind of funny because I think that applies then to Happy Gilmore. Mm-hmm. Like, because Happy Gilmore is that's what we grew up liking hockey, liking Happy Gilmore because he was the shitty hockey player who could only fight, right? Yeah. Um, and slap the puck really hard. So I kind of wonder, like, you know, was that would that criticism then apply to, you know, Happy Gilmore as a as a folk for, hero? For the golf elitist, what we're talking about yeah. here, like these are folk heroes. They say that in the movie, which I really appreciate. They do become folk heroes among amongst uh, hardcore hockey fans. That's a very good question, though. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, they're definitely like cult figures, icons of hockey fans, right? This film and the, the characters in this film. And one of the biggest hockey films today is Goon, right? And they even have a sequel, yeah. uh, Goon, yeah. The Last Enforcer or whatever. Um, the first Goon is the only one I've seen so far, and it's actually really good. But uh, a, another thing that I uh, loved about the hockey and the fact that it's in the late 70s is they don't have helmets. And so it's so much better visually. You could see the facial expressions. You could see the affect of the players. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that that definitely yeah, benefited. Scars and everything. That's the one thing I like, the mm-hmm. scars, right? Because yeah. hockey players today, I mean, you know, you get that surgery and stuff. Um, you usually keep no teeth. That's that's the thing you always want to keep. But a lot of guys, you know, you get your scars fixed up. And like, yeah. I really like the character, was uh, Captain Captain Hook, they call him. Mm-hmm. The dude takes people's eyes out of the stick. I love he's got his scars and everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that aspect. If you look at old pictures of old-time hockey players, man, they're jacked up, especially the goalies, man. Did you see Newman sporting his own little false tooth going on there? No, I didn't catch that. Oh, okay. go back and watch. He's watch like that. one of his teeth is like I don't know if I don't know if it's makeup or if he like has one of those that he normally has to like cover up for most of his other movie roles, like very Jim Carrey ish. Like come back and show what my real teeth look like, but he's got like a gold framed like uh-huh. supported tooth at least in character there. I'm going to keep my eye out for that next time. Yeah. Hey, Don, you wrote this, I think, in your article, but I forgot. How old was Newman during the shooting of this? He was pretty old, right? Yeah. Let me see here. He was 52 at the time of this movie. And that's the other thing is I the way we were talking about, like, who is Burt Reynolds today? Like, who at 52 would make this movie today? And, like, because Newman's out there on his skates doing yeah. this stuff. I didn't look at if there's a there's a stunt coordinator in the movie, which actually is Ned Dowd, but I don't know how many stunt performers are there other than just a couple of hockey players. And I don't know if Newman needed a double, which is crazy. 
you know? So I guess this would be George Clooney making Leatherheads, that kind of thing. But yeah, he's out there having a blast. 52. And I think that Al Pacino really wanted the role, but he couldn't skate. He couldn't yeah, ride skate. Right. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine Pacino in this? I can't imagine yeah, Pacino said in this. Travolta and Nick Nolte also auditioned and couldn't skate, so they couldn't get it. Oof. And Travolta, I mean, he's... I don't he want to say dance. he's athletic, but he dances the best right. in the whole wide world. So, yeah, but I mean, but that shows you, obviously, the finesse of skating. Like, I can't skate to save my life either. I call it ice falling when I take my kids out and we go skating. I'm like, daddy's going to be on his ass the whole time, kids. They, so just skate by me. You know? They did say that Newman was really dedicated to the craft, though. Like, as mm-hmm. I mentioned, Nick Dowd training. They said he had the lakes to skate initially, but he didn't like the stick. He's like, I don't know what really to do with this thing. So he really got yeah. into, like, the... You know, learning how to actually like hold the stick and whatnot. So it's really cool, like, right. so, like seeing him actually out there in the film. Like you know, it's him. Yeah, I think Nick Nolte would actually be pretty awesome. I just saw Blue Chips, and he was amazing in that film as uh, basically playing a college basketball coach who's oh. mm-hmm. uh, a little bit unhinged, uh, very much your Bobby Knight figure if you know college basketball. Uh, but uh, another thing that was great about not having the helmets, and we got to talk about this scene, was the fight scene that you really get the payoff in the Star Spangled Banner when they have that tracking shot. One of the greatest tracking shots of all time, right? And just everything. One of the best lines of all time. Shut up, I'm listening to the fucking song. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. (laughs) And the build up to it, like, turn not just turn around once, turn around twice. I think he even turns around three times like, I'm going to say something to him. No, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I want to say something to him. And then it might be three times. Uh-huh. You know, just the he shuts him down. The so. Comic timing and all that is good too. Like, and like even Hanson stays there for just long enough to get yelled at, but then doesn't immediately pop on him, but then does. And, oh, beautiful stuff. Really beautiful. And uh, another thing I want to bring up too is we're talking about so much about Paul Newman and how he he played this role so great, but he actually had a really squeaky clean for the most part image comparatively, right? Not squeaky, oh, yeah. squeaky clean. You know, he was always kind of like, uh, you know, cool hand Luke isn't squeaky clean by any stretch of the imagination, but yeah. nothing like that. bombs every movie. Yeah. 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 This is very much a subversion of his image. And so that, that too is very satisfying to see. And he's, having a blast. And that's the last paragraph of your article, I think. It's like he said it's the most fun he's ever had. So uh, anyways, uh, in terms of other movies that were inspired by this and other movies that it just really would vibe with, if you could give a double feature for Mm -hmm. Slapshot in any other movie, and uh, as you look that up, I'll give it to Jordan, uh, and even a triple feature, what would it be? What one or two movies would you throw in with Slapshot? If you had a VHS for a night and all your buddies over and a 12-pack, what would you you put on this? Man, uh, I'd want to theme it up, I think. I'm going to put like a theme. I'd want to do like the hockey theme. Okay. Trace it, right? But you got to go with like funny hockey movies. So I'm going to go with like one I've already said. I I mentioned um, Happy Gilmore. So I think that'd be a good comparative thing comparative piece with this as well actually just because i just watched it and it is worth watching and it's more recent it came out in 2017 i would say puck hogs because okay. it's an actual documentary like mockumentary like spinal tap this is spinal tap following a beer league team so it's a kind of similar premises and like we discussed this movie has like kind of documentary motif going on i think that'd be a really cool pairing just for the sake of discussion i would do um i would stick to two double feature bull durham 
you know, the, the, I want to get to the show, all these minor league players that might have a career, might not, you know, uh, Crash Davis is your Reggie Dunlop, the guy who's an eternal minor leaguer talking shit about this, talking shit about that. And then you have your hot shots in there mixed in. And then you still have your sexiness mixed in. Like you still got your great uh, male and female. You got same thing, that dual male and female gaze there is then there because students ran. It's awesome. You know, just really stirring up that movie. I'd pair it with Bill Durham. Nice. I'm going to throw some new ones because I threw some references already. I think would be really good. Like everybody wants some would be great. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mentioned briefly Animal House, which I think would actually work pretty darn well. Uh, but I'm going to say Caddyshack. There and, you go. There yeah. you go. <laughs> right? Because it's kind of uh, quirky, funny. That's how I described it to my girlfriend. It's kind of Caddyshack hockey. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's a quick reference but more vulgar yeah and, and caddyshack enters into like the absurd and almost a surreal a little bit like it's just really silly and i think this is actually higher quality but i came around to shaddy cat shaddy i came around to caddyshack after i watched this because i don't think i really was on the wavelength with caddyshack at first when i watched it i didn't get what it was trying to do and i knew it was this cult classic and i was like why am i feeling nothing watch this again and suddenly i'm like I understand Caddyshack. I get it. I get what he was going for. I get the time period. I get the humor. Um, so that would be one for me. And the other one, even though it's a little more formulaic, would be Bad News Bears because- There you it, go. Yeah, right? It's just a little bit more about the uncouth, unvarnished side of sports with that you know surly coach who's a drunk. But there we get the redemptive aspect, which we do not get. And for the better in Slapshot. And I think both are for the better. I love the redemptive art of um, Walter Matthau and Bad News Bears. It's, and I I've, haven't even seen the sequel. I really want to watch the sequel of Linklater made. I'm sure it's at least decent, but one of my all-time- Okay. 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 It's okay. Yeah, it's such a classic. I don't know why you would even touch that, but, um, and I all respect to him. He's a great filmmaker and writer and all that, but it's just like no need to remake that one. But yeah, yeah. He, that's Linklater. He's Jekyll and Hyde. You have, you either have serious Linklater or you have party Linklater. And the, he's, he's got those two speeds and not much gray in between, you know? Totally. Uh, the other thing I noticed is they kept showing like marquees in the, in the film. And one of the things they kept showing on the marquee was curious to me was Deep Throat, which is, uh, that mm -hmm. very first like NC-17 rated film. I remember watching yeah. the fictionalized version of Deep Throat, like called Deep Throat about, I think the star of it. Uh, it came I love this with Amy Seyfried, yeah. Yes, exactly. And I saw a documentary on it. This was a very seminal film in terms of its impact on culture at large and what it did in terms of pushing taboos into the mainstream and normalizing things and creating these big questions. And I think Slapshot in its own right does that as well. So it's a really keen little wink they do in the film, I think on purpose, you know, just like nodding to Deep Throat is like a little bit of a vulgar, profane comrade or compatriot. So yeah, there's a lot of films. I think that this exists in the world with another fun game. I want to do like a real round table, quick thing. And this is way late in our conversation, but the synopses of this online are hilariously bad and will probably be bad too yeah. <laughs> because it's hard to recapitulate this film so much, but I'm going to read one that I read and then I'm going to pass it around and see if we could each try to give a one sentence description of the film to wrap up our conversation of the film and uh, to move on to the review. So the one I found online is to build up attendance at their games, the management of a struggling minor league hockey team signs up the Hanson brothers, three hard charging players whose job is to demolish the opposition. That's their synopsis. 
And so it, it gets one minor facet of this film, but I think it leaves out so much. And we should probably talk a little bit more about the Hanson brothers, but first I want to give you each a chance to give, I think, a one-line synopsis. It could be two lines of the film from your perspective. So go, Don, if you can. Ooh, I will say lovable losers stay lovable losers in a dying town on a dying team that just wants to have fun that's much better i i think it's much better already it definitely it captures the ambiance it captures the lack of art it captures the malu and all of that is so much better <laughs> so jordan i'll put you on the, on the um spot. i guess i would say a minor league hockey coach player goes all in on one big lie to rally the lovable losers Really good, right? I think that is what I was shocked about. That none of the synopses talked about the lie. Maybe they didn't want to give it away, but the big yeah. central crux Thanks. of the plot is yeah. that this guy is creating a complete machination. Yeah. He wills it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. he, he wills it, right? And he's peddling it to his team. And that scene where he shows up at the actual owner is really fascinating. The fact that the owner is a woman is really fascinating. What, same thing, another strong character there, yeah. Yeah, what she has to say is really fascinating, right? And just the interplay of you know PR, of management, of money, right? And so it's definitely a film about, as I think that you guys said, like a dying town. Uh, it's about the desperation of small town America trying to, I'm quoting you, Don, it's trying to stave off extinction, yeah. uh, right? It, it, it's the will to keep a lifestyle in the face of the pressure of capitalism and society at large, which is shifting in a different direction. And mm -hmm. so I, I really feel like that is yeah. the heart of it. That's the beat of it. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to make it a no man land prequel by any means, you know, where this is going to be an immediate ghost town. And then, you know, Paul Newman's going to turn into Francis McDormand and just wander around. <laughs> but, you know, it, it feels like it could tip to that. And we've seen like the deer hunter goes there with like, you know, steel towns and not a lot of prospects. Yeah. So unless you go to war, you have a great career, might as well have a hockey team, you know, like these guys at least have status. You know, it's not very well paying status, but like, hey, you're one of the Charleston Chiefs, you know, like they got that. It's the popularity of high school that the, that never ended for them, at least in this little local celebrity way. And for them, that's the high water mark they'll ever get, you know. No, it, it's uh, definitely uh, so, something about America. I mean, the title is in the stars of the American flag. And they're constantly playing the national anthem on an organ too, which is so seventies. Uh, the mm -hmm. costumes, totally. the organ, everything. Well, when the organist has to wear the helmet, or she takes the puck to the head. <laughs> I mean, those subtleties of like those nuanced aspects of just like humor just are everywhere in, in this in this movie. Like, yeah. I mean, when they when, tell, tell him you get one phone call, he's like, we call the pizza man. <laughs> or when when uh when Newman goes in there and tears up the one song he doesn't want to hear anymore because it's just the same Lady of Spain or whatever. It was. Yeah. Like, yeah, just just that kind of antics, you know. And then you get and the same thing with Jim Carr, you know, when he does he's the radio guy locally in town who's complete pessimist every every chance he gets, and then he's your play by play voice where same thing in a different movie that's a smoother Joe Buck, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Bob Costas level gravitas presence. And then you just have the mile a minute talk that he tries to just churn out with a little bit of panache along the way where, I mean, different movies would just either go all character or all serious. Like it's either Bob Euchre in major league or it's, or it's Joe Buck, a pro coming in to play a pro. Totally. Um, and uh, I mentioned this quickly. I want to now throw it around. I, we don't think we just talked about them enough because they are such a 
residual part of the culture if you are in this subculture that loves Slapshot, that loves hockey films, and it's the Hanson brothers. They are a meme, basically, oh, to this day, right? And mm-hmm. uh, just what do you think about them? They are so bizarre. They are played for humor. They're kind yeah. of dim-witted. They're kind of smart. In kind their- of real. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The way put they- on the foil, you know, just what? <laughs> the way they pump up him and his speeches. Yeah, coach, coach says do this. You play hard. You don't right. go to the boards. I mean, there's always that dude in the locker room who's, who's, just, who's pumping you always. up. Like, and they're not even playing, right? It's no. just coach said do it. Like, you know, coach says we should do it. We should do it. I love the scene where they're playing with cars, like toy cars. Like, what is going on? And like, they complain That's about- real thing, yeah. dude. Yeah. Dave Hansen then- used to travel with toy cars. And they, because here's the thing, he used to say on Sundays when you travel, the bars are closed. Mm-hmm. So they'd get bored because they couldn't go out drinking and they'd bring their toy cars and race them. And then all the boys would get drunk and they'd bet on it. We already right. had left over. And that's, and that's something they ended up putting in the movie. So it's like a real thing yeah. that I guess he was known for. But you're right. The movie kind of plays him as the, like, well, the R word, you know, like these guys are R. <laughs> yeah. Like they frame them as dim witted yet. They just don't care. The the smiling, jovial confidence that comes off those guys, no matter how dim-witted, no matter how benched they are, from I think that the the announcement of that comes the loudest, isn't that is that national anthem moment where like, you know, for as much as they're just out there to like be meatballs and goons, that they still respect and love their coach. They still stand for the anthem. They still play it as straight as they can as nice boys when they're not mm-hmm. here. And yeah, the the cult figure status of those guys, I can't explain it all these years later. It's it's surreal what they are i think it's a testament to really highlighting truly trifling incidents like the root beer dialogue or the cars as we say things that every time we think and we're supposing or assuming that they are an archetype of some sort like they're just the doltish uh enforcer or they're just the gung-ho fighters which they are they do something weird that just makes you disoriented. And I think they don't fit any box completely to this day. And I think that's why they are the like most adorable goons ever. They're just so indescribable almost at the same time <laughs> and so definable. Yeah. They're, they're like this weird uh, contradiction to me of being iconic in every way. And then like, if I had to really characterize them and I was watching them thinking like, I can't, put my finger on exactly who these three brothers are archetypally. And I love that. Well, that's the thing. Like, and I know I keep saying this in other parts of the movie, but this is another thing today that someone would overtune. Like these guys would be a bag of quirks. They are a bag of quirks, but none of them are so damn loud that it's dialed to 12. Like they're just weird enough, just weird enough. Like they're just violent enough on the ice to be violent, but they smile and laugh the whole way. They'll tell you to, you know, listen to the fucking song, but they're not going to punch the ref immediately following that. They have their little foil and they have their little cars and they're bitching about soda machines. Today, that, that would be Happy Gilmore, where it, it's mm-hmm. dialed to 12. That'd be Steve Stifler and it's dialed, and well, or Goon, and it's dialed to 12. Like like you said, there's just enough nuance every man in there because they're not played by stars. That would be the other thing. Some name actor would, would insist on being the weird one and having fun with the weirdness, and we, we mm-hmm. probably wouldn't be able to get past them as being the weird one. I'm thinking of like Daniel Craig in Logan Lucky, 
where like he's the weird convict helping the heist. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie, but like, but you you look at him and he's having this. You could tell Daniel Craig's having a blast, but all of us look at him and go, "That's James Bond." Don't even try doing the Kentucky Fried Southerner weirdo thing. You just can't pull it off, Daniel. I know you're having fun and you're a great actor, but when you bring regular dudes or actually just straight up regular hockey guys playing it, they just seem so genuine. One of the other things, and I listened to it as well, the Spit and Chicklets interview with the Hanson brother. And another cool trivia point is that he actually played for, and Jordan, you got to help me out here because I'm not great at name dropping these figures, but the coach in Miracle, and it's blanking. Oh, um, Brooks, right? What's that? Hubie Brooks? Yes. It's Herbie. Hubert? Herb. Herb Brooks, yeah. Yeah. And it's just bizarre because you couldn't think of anyone uh, take that character and take Herb Brooks's personality <laughs> further on the spectrum, right? Uh, you know, the most disciplined, you know, just draconian, but also, I don't want to call him righteous, but he's got his yeah. shit together. Right. Yeah. And they have it too, but they're like kids and they're enforcers and they're just kind of scrappy and just so different. So anyways, let's move on to the reviews. If, if anyone has anything left to say, we'll throw it into the reviews. So on Rotten Tomatoes, Slapshot actually does well. So that's exciting. It's a fictional sports movie that's above the 70s. It's like extremely successful if it's above the 70s and fiction and sports. So uh, it has 85 from the uh, tomato meter, which is the critics. Dawn is on the front page of that. So check mm-hmm. that out. <laughs> and it has the 89% score on the audience level. So it's both loved by critics and audience members. And I'm going to throw it to whoever wants to go first. What are some one-line quotes and blurbs from critics that you found? Don, you can't pick yourself. So you got to pick I will pick not someone. pick myself. <laughs> whoever wants to take it, go ahead. Well, it's right. weird for me is I, I pick up, a, like when I go to the splatter spots, you know, the ones that are the negative reviews, you can, I don't want to like just call out immediate pretension but like i'm looking at washington post and gary arnold on here and he goes newman is literally a diamond in the rough and it requires a certain forbearance to separate his quality from the surrounding ranch and i'm like <laughs> don't make this movie to be intelligent just scale it down to what this can or can't be and i think gary over there in the washington post just didn't get the memo that just come in and have fun fair assessment of that uh, let me see here with, oh yeah, Ruth Bachelor of Los Angeles Free Press writes, Nancy Dowd's first script is so clear and chock full of realities in the sports world that makes me want to stand up and cheer. And I cannot say that enough. Like mm-hmm. we've already, already discussed this at length in today's podcast. Uh, you can't give enough credit to, like, to the foundation of that script. And just carrying back onto that interview that Hanson had with Sp- Chicklets, he applauded her a lot and said, you know, they're given free reign to ad lib. And it was really more of the minor ad-libbing that they had to do as far as the actual foundation of the script like it was really received well amongst you know these authentic hockey players definitely want to give her a shout out for sure totally uh and i found one that touched on uh the topic of gender so this is by richard t jameson from the parallax view and he wrote one of the film's unexpected bonanzas is a clutch of beautifully realized female roles and I think, I think that is an unsung quality of this film. It is very dominated by like masculine testosterone energy, but it has ulterior or antipodal element too, that other side. And you get very realized roles, especially with Francine and Lily. So well mm-hmm. said. I, I'll, I'll keep going to the people who sound pretentious. Um, I went to the splatters again. So there's only five rotten reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. One of them is from Dennis Schwartz of Dennis Schwartz Movie Reviews. And he goes, it's moral pretenses left me cold. And I'm like, 
you're going going to the moral pretense. It sounded like that's the, the the gun in the bag you're going for there, the knife in the drawer. I don't know. Like, and we we talked about it even in our talk here. Like, there's morals here for sure. Like, w- there's a female writer's restraint to have both gazes and not completely go full. You know, I don't want to say full frontal, but just you know, full exposure of full things. You know, like just insinuate and incite enough things to again be real and be still uh, humorous like that's the crazy thing about it is for me looking back one more time is like you have the documentary realism of small town and all the little trials and tribulations that are here but you still have the hollywood conventions that make this a damn good comedy and the editing that we talked about and the and the characters and to still have newman lead all this and not overshadow a soul is really good like he could have easily turned this into a glamour project when he it's still he still has plenty of airspace steals a lot of oxygen but it's not in a i'm better than everyone else kind of thing he's just one of the dudes and it fits yeah and- pretenses come on <laughs> no i'm so with you right the moral pretense is absurd because I think the highest morality almost for art is to show things as they are. And for sure, there's a few elements here that are played for laughs, that are lampooning, uh, cartoonish and characterizing elements, for sure, to a degree. They know it's a film. But it is vital. There's a vitality to this. And that's what even Vincent Canby of New York Times said. The, The vitality overwhelms most of the questions relating to consistency of character and point of view. I think that's the whole point is for it to have an inconsistent point of view it's supposed to be uh, like an amorphous film and a uh, mercurial movie in which you never really feel like you're given direction because these people are directionless really they're just doing whatever they can to survive and sustain the lifestyle that they have they are not thinking that far ahead in the future and it's for that reason it's off the cuff in in the best possible way it feels alive feels very vigorous in that sense so jordan what else did you find yeah, this one comes from Richard Schickel of Time Magazine, who writes, mm-hmm. Slapshot may have done a lot of fast skating and some solid body checking, but in the last period, it makes a final costly slip and misses its goal. Oh. I disagree with this one. Yeah, I particularly like the ending of this movie. I like how it's borderline anticlimactic, but still yeah. like deadpan humor. Like yeah, the idea they of the win by accident. Fuck off know? the ice. Here's your trophy. Leave. Yeah. I'm sick of you animals. <laughs> like I love the way it ends. It has that giant like strip tease on the ice where the guy who's been in his shell the whole time finally comes out. I like the way that goes. That was unexpected for me as a viewer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that way, that way their relationship's going to resolve. I like the ending. We talked already how bleak it is where we get Paul Newman coming full circle. And he's still, his journey was basically futile in the end. And I like that yeah. ending. It's, it's a way to leave it. It's anti what we're going to get for the next 30 years of sports movies. So I, I cannot disagree with this more. I think it scored a goal in that last period, in that last one, by getting that disqualification victory. I love the idea they win by disqualification. I know. It's, it works so well with this. And that they're I mean, stoked to win that Yeah. One. And it, I know Rocky, a year earlier, you know, went for like the, you know, the big ending of the big sports moment, the final bell and all that. And spoiler alert for those who haven't seen Rocky, Rocky loses. And in every sports movie we think of since then, you got to have a winner or at least something really super duper hopeful. And you're right to to have the the bleakness underlying there. It's perfect, you know, and 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 braver than it would be just taking the easy way out of the big win. Yeah, uh, completely. I was even wondering what was the ending this writer or critic was fixating upon. Like <laughs> it was purposely anti-ending in many ways. It was like disqualification, like you said. Here's your damn trophy, and then it ends with kind of the parade. But yeah. I love that, too, because it's really saying this is about the city of Johnstown. This is about this milieu, this place, 
this world, this climate, all these, I'm saying too many words now, but it's about a place and a time. And, and as we all noted, our main character, Reggie, doesn't really get what he wants. And that's his wife back. So it's purposely frustrating. And unless he's just like a critic, just craving every trope of a sports movie, he wants to slow clap and he, he wants right. to like victory, which I, how would he like the rest of the film if he wants these things? I don't know what he was looking for. So it baffles me that he liked three fourths of the movie and didn't like the, the last one for it. And another little blurb that I'm going to throw out before we switch over to Letterboxes by Variety. They don't even put the critic's name on Rotten Tomatoes, shame on them. But I think it's a fascinating strange take and it says half the time hill invites the audience to get off on the mayhem the other half he decries it the mayhem and they don't like the film because of this though they have the splatter Hmm. and that is so off to me because isn't that what it should be this sort of polarization of both understanding why it has an appeal and a seduction for certain people and why it could be repulsive as well. Like understanding the dichotomy of things is everything to me. And we, we said it before, I think that comes from the perspective, like you've got a real, real tales of real hockey, you know, and then yeah, by a woman instead of a dude, you know, I think that's a huge piece to that. Yeah. And once again, you see a problem with the critic is really pinned on a lack of consistency, but this film's sole motivation is to be, inconsistent so that that seems like a major rift that's going on between the expectation of the audience for something that is more cookie cutter and that has something to 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 really bite your teeth in by the end uh if you have teeth left by the end given the context of the film so let's hop over to the hot takes on letterbox and uh, there's some really hot ones and so i'll let you, you i can see already biting at the, I don't even know the proverb or axiom for that, but, and we don't have teeth anyways, but I'll let you go, Don. (laughs) No, over on Letterboxd, I get a kick out of just people who can't read this as a time capsule or, or belabor it as such. Like I'm reading, this is Travis Lytle. And he says, like, if Goon and Semi-Pro had a baby and that baby was better in every way. And I'm like, all right, thanks, Captain Obvious. But um, babies aren't made in reverse chronological order. I, I, I admit that's one thing I, I, I know it's Letterboxd and not you know, like press level stuff. But I do my best not to like try to compare movies like, oh, it's a little dash of this and a little dash of that. Like I, I try to when I write, I try to just review the movie at hand and not try to compare too many other things. I, I know I name drop Major League and Bill Durham in here as movies down the road that that. Oh, slap shot a, a little bit of gleam, but yeah, I don't semi pro and goon. Well, I mean, of course, the goon part works, but I don't know about semi pro. No, I mean, I have a little bit of a bad habit. I like to compare, I like to put it in. I'll a, compare in i'll compare in conversation i try not to compare when i write but mm-hmm. yeah in conversation yeah. totally it's that's the best part yeah the the problem with that is what, is what you referenced too it's also like these movies if they had a baby it would go forward in time right these are films that came out two decades after the fact of slap shot so it doesn't even make sense you just can't do that that's what that's what cracked me up about this one so yeah uh not my favorite and definitely uh one of the uh bad habits in the letterbox sphere um mm-hmm. i'm gonna go with mary's i think it's really funny it's a four-star review and it's pretty simple paul newman's fur colored coat is worth four stars alone it is a good looking yeah. coat yeah enough said yeah. right <laughs> that, that, that says it all it, it, yeah. that coat. he's got the coat he's got the turtleneck he's got like doesn't he have a real big fashion ring like he i mean he's nailing it 
Yeah. And yeah, at 52, still scoring chicks at the bar. Gotta gotta love it. They're all nailing it. And I love when Lily goes and gets her do-over by mm-hmm. Francine. Uh, I just love all of the little accent points of the movie. The the guy's come over, the broadcaster, radio host, TV guy. He's got like kind of a come over thing going on. So 70s. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll just tackle another one real quick because that one was just so, so short. Um, this one's by Travis little and he gives it three and a half stars he says bone crunching foul mouth and entirely entertaining droid roy hill slapshot is a sports comedy with heaps of bloody nose split lip personality sharp dialogue and memorable characters all make the film an effortlessly appealing piece of work yeah we could be we could be down with that one we like that one for once it's it's That's concise so yeah it's pity it's on the point and so I'm going to throw it back to you, Don, for our listeners out there. Jordan's taking a piss, so we're just riffing on. Back, I'm back. <laughs> oh, you're back. Sorry, I didn't even see it. So, Jordan. Jordan, you got a letterbox hitter you like here? Yeah. Did you guys read one from Ian Curran yet? No, hit it. Okay. Uh, so this one comes from Ian Curran, as I said. He writes, this movie com- confuses me in so many ways. I'm not really sure what the primary story is. I'm also not sure if it's the most homophobic movie ever made or the greatest satire of the closed-mindedness of sports. Hmm. All I know is I laughed out loud a few times and Newman is always great on screen. I dig that review. I like the potterness of it. Took a twist there I wasn't expecting when he uh, dropped the whether it's the most homophobic movie he's ever seen or not. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with the freshness of this review i like it too because it takes an ambivalent stance it's like yeah is it celebrating right. this is it satirizing it is it something in between yeah i like yeah, that the question a lot. what's it doing with what's presenting absolutely I, I still do i know i say in the review i still do worry about this film aging when people get a hold of it like i can see this movie being one of those situations where like the outrage comes later like like I remember a few years back when like it was revealed that John Wayne in some old Playboy review, you know, Playboy mm-hmm. interview from 50 years ago, said something about some demographic of people. I think it was Native Americans or something. I don't know what it was, but like I'm waiting for some wide-eyed, I hate to say millennial, like get a hold of this movie, talk about, you know, like, this would pass the Bechdel test a little bit. It's got enough women talking, but like they would watch this movie and just be absolutely outraged by every slanderous word in it and call it, it would just go straight to the usual thing that millennials mm-hmm. call things as trash. Yeah, and, especially because it comes at you so hard, too. Oh, yeah. And yeah. like you said, that modern audiences are not very um, versed in dissecting these materials. Uh, no, or, or just versed in just <laughs> letting it be. Like, yeah. you know. Yeah, exactly. Like, Criticizing for the sake of what it is. Right. Um, like, I agree you, with you. This is definitely one of those ones. Like, like you're asking about fighting mm-hmm. um, and the way hockey views fighting. Like, it's comparable to the way we view movies and vulgarity and what we want with that. And I yeah. agree. With you. This is one of those ones on the sports radar that cancel culture might come after one day oh, um, despite as we see in some of these reviews the way it is treated is much more nuanced and intricate and i'd mm-hmm. say essential to some of these plot points than i think these pretty much cursory reviews really are right like i can't put a how dare how dare they on this movie or any movie be, that happened like because you have to go back again with the time capsule and play the era like back then you could do this stuff you could say these things or 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 even if you couldn't or shouldn't it these was were- said and you just documented as such and that's the how dare they part is like if you were to sanitize it just for the sake of sanitizing it then you're not showing the area you, you lose some genuineness in there mm-hmm. totally um it reminds me of the film called the comedy out there when rick alverson got in a big fight with some of the biggest critics in america about that and he's just like the director is not supposed to have a moral take i mean they can't i, I don't think he's right either in saying like an absolute mm-hmm. statement like that but he's saying sure. we're just supposed to show you things and your responsibility is to take the hard line and i, I think that we're losing that element for sure don did you find anything else 
I guess we have to go to Dr. Morbius at the end here. With apologies to Citizen Kane and Vertigo, this is the greatest movie ever made in the history of motion pictures. As I write this review, I'm lounging in my heart-covered boxer shorts and dress socks common. <laughs> I love that he like really gave us that vivid uh, picture and portrait of himself writing the review because it really it nicely mirrors the movie. We talked about yeah. being in your boxers, right? No, that's really great. The one I have was uh, the last one is Dell five star review. I tried to really slim it down. Just know that he drank Moscow mules while watching it. So he's it, doing it right. He's doing it right. Actually, right? that's a little fancy of a drink for a movie like this. You need cheap swill, you know, 30 pack beer. You need Natty Light. Or the 70s beers they barely make anymore, like Stroh's and PBR and Hams. For sure. What would you tackle watching this, Jordan? Oh, I said Paps, like you said, PBR. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, so Dell writes, when people discuss the great vulgar comedies of all time, it's usually Animal House, which we've mentioned already. But Slapshot is rougher, more, more vulgar, sharper, and its satire has better characters. They actually feel like human beings, at least, well, certain ones. And it is arguably far funnier. And it came out a year, year earlier. Suck it, Animal House. I think that he's really on point in the sense that this is a really strange genre film because it straddles the line between that hangout frat boy comedy world, like Meatballs and even the Will Ferrell ones, I think you could throw in some of those. Totally. Uh, old school type films uh, and, and child films, which it, we have had two decades of yeah. three. If you throw Sandler stuff in there. So absolutely. And to me, I see even some Robert Altman in here with the overlapping dialogue and the, the dead space. So you see art school stuff and you see the more like ensemble films of Linklater, where you're seeing a bunch of different people in their world. And you, you have so many different intersecting genres that I think it's a truly fascinating capsule, not only of the late 70s, not only of Johnstown, but of different modes of storytelling in cinema. And I, I, I think that's why it's, it's like a, a real classic, in my opinion. I can't call this movie a man-child film. The way we we see immaturity played other places, like these guys are silly and they're 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 goons. And of course, you have the Hanson brothers playing with toys, but they're still all like ardently men, you mm-hmm. know, doing men things and having manly results. And even you know, they come as actual human beings. And again, a movie today would would overdial the man-child stuff. Would would turn this into Adam Sandler and Happy Gilmore, where it's you know they're almost just mentally debilitated from having any maturity because just because the Hanson brothers are here on the side, all the other guys on that team are absolute men. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and they're they're definitely uh, trying to just get by. I think that's crucial quality to that as well on their own means too, right? They're they're mm-hmm. making their own living, so. So yeah, uh, now I think we're done with external reviews and we have to have final takes, all of us. And Don, you're new, so I'm going to give it to you right away. Would you call this an overrated or an underdog film? And within that context, why? I would still call this underdog. I know it makes a lot of lists. Um, with Maxim being on the top and it, it shows up in Sports Illustrated on in sporting news like it makes lists as being one of the top 25 top 50 maybe even top 15 or top 10 sports movies of all time but because it's such a time capsule and because it has realism with its vulgarity I still don't think this movie is seen by enough people to go wow look at look at that like Folks still go to Happy Gilmore. Folks still go to Animal House. Folks still go to the Mighty Ducks and the kid stuff of hockey. Or they want their heroic 
sports movies, which is a great archetype that I love. You know, I love heroic sports. Rudy's my number one, and it's the most heroic, uh, you know, odds against everything movie you got. But there's a place for a movie like this to be just occupy a different level in a different world. And I think that's what makes this an underdog movie because it, it helps as being populated and filled by underdogs, but it's still a movie that as we're watching it now ourselves and comparing our notes, like the chops of it are coming out more and more for me. Like the jokes and the humor is all I picked up on when I first saw it in college. But now I'm catching, like we said, the costuming, the intentionalness of the, of the, the, the photography and intentionalness of the story and me realizing there's a woman writer and all that aspect to it yeah this is underdog for me because this movie should fail or or be a mixed bag because it tried the documentary thing and, and went for such a small sliver of a different kind of sport but here he is just being fantastic for regularity and fun perfect yeah all right jordan your turn well said don i agree with basically everything you said there uh ross we're just gonna kind of touch on but yeah i, I agree I'm especially reading a lot of reviews about it i'm gonna qualify my response as underdog I feel at the very least, based on a lot of these negative reviews, it comes off to crass now for your uh, more modern audience. So in that regard, I think it's an underdog fact. I feel it's going to get missed, unfortunately. The people who have it on a high pedestal right now are people like us who were of that age range where our fathers likely passes moving on to. I know that's how I used to watch it mostly. It was on a lot in the background. So I used to resonate really a lot with the Hanson brothers and their violence. And the like you said, the WWE aspects I was always a big fan of. But watching it as an adult and seeing how well-constructed it is, how much of a commentary it is on hockey, on life, the way sports impact your life and what it is to, when you make sports your means of income and where that puts you in the cog of the mechanism. Like you said, other than Moneyball, that's the goal of the movie is to show you that. This was such a good job of putting it on the periphery and then bringing it to the forefront. Again, where we get that reveal of the female owner is just this is a tax write-off and it's that final you know it's that big blow which we need in the sports movie but it has such bigger larger philosophical and actual implications that most other sports movies are really just kind of touch on and they spend a lot of move the whole movie touching on it whereas this one it punches you in the gut and it leaves you with the aftermath of that and the way it ends where i feel like paul newman gets it but doesn't quite want to accept the reality of that 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 team is not there even if he gets his job you know we don't even know if the job's real i'll be honest i don't know if he actually got a job coaching in minnesota i was gonna ask you guys uh, do you think he actually had a coaching job or is it just another ploy right yeah just uh, another, which i like about it. it's I'm like it's like that blade runner thing is, is deckard a, a robot or not it gets you one more time in the end where it makes you think and i i can i can appreciate that when you get to the end if you watch it from beginning to end it's something you leaves you pondering it's an underdog for me in that way because i didn't experience that as a child um mm-hmm. when you see it as a doll it's so well crafted yeah I'll say one more thing before Paul closes it, but like a movie is supposedly this revered and on this many lists deserves more than 34 Rotten Tomatoes critics reviews. True. You can, I bet Rocky has tripled this many, you know, come on. Easily, right? Yeah, it's criminally underseen still, right? And I think it's because it's hockey. Hockey is definitely right. a marginal sport. And one thing that makes this to me an underdog film is it is a certain Cinderella story. If you told me a 1977 movie about a bunch of blue collar minor league hockey players without any arc is even talked about today at all at the same time is an underdog story. And that doesn't make it overrated. That makes it still an underdog story. As you're watching an underdog, you can root and say, that's an underdog, you know, in whatever sport it is, right? When you're watching March Madness and the the 16th seed is in the final four, you're like, wow, this is the greatest underdog Cinderella story ever. And this movie, the fact that it's surviving and continuing to survive 
even with its great list of actors and you know producers and directors and screenwriters and all that behind it, the content alone is pretty shocking in the sense that it it really always seems to somehow find its niche. And yes, you know, outrage culture might be trying to throw jabs at it, but in a way, I think it's going to do anything. It's going to bring more attention to this. I think it might be its its greatest boost in decades, to be honest. So, you know, there's the, the positive of that as well. And, you know, it, 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 whether we, you know, we can criticize that for, for all the right reasons, but uh, it, it, it creates interesting conversations around movies like this. And so I, I think that it does foster ultimately a good thing. It lets us go back into the vault find these classics and ask ourselves these questions and try to empathize with what it would be like in 1977 in a really, really immersive visceral way. And so I actually thank that part of the zeitgeist for for bringing these movies back to the forefront. And so speaking of old school movies, we're moving a decade forward, but not too forward next episode and we're going to go after Youngblood or let's say Czech Youngblood off our list and that's a 1986 film so one year before Jordan and I were both born and neither of us have seen this it stars an all-star cast Rob Lowe, Patrick Swayze, Keanu Reeves and Cynthia Glibb. Big hitters. Yeah, big, big hitters. And it is something that I really don't know much about. So I'm just excited purely on that. I don't even really want to know much about it. Uh, Jordan, do you know much about it? And if so, could you sell this to our audience to listen next week at all? Uh, so I'll let you. I'm actually the same boat as you. I've been avoiding researching it because here's how I came across it more. It's, it's the one hockey movie that a lot of hockey dudes talk about that I haven't seen. Particularly a lot of pro guys. They always mention, you know, Happy Gilmore. Slapshot, Miracle is always up there. And then Youngbloods is usually in there. Um, it's just one I haven't haven't seen. So I can't really sell you on that. But I think that cast alone should fucking sell it, dude. Keanu Reeves, Rob Lowe, Patrick Swayze. I mean, can you get more 80s than that in a sports movie? That alone sold me on it. So I'm trying to keep keep the spoilers low. Don, have you seen this? I have not, but I'm crazy for Swayze. So it's going to get it's going to get found really soon here. Yeah. Have you even heard of it? Oh yeah, I've heard of it. I mean, but just um, like we said, just with the underratedness of of Slapshot, it just wouldn't make my radar unless it's someone put it in front of me. Definitely. So I think that is our pitch. So for everyone listening, we're gonna all watch this underseen movie together and bring it back. We're gonna give it a quick resurgence with yeah, hopefully cinema. Jeff. Yeah, hopefully. And even if it's not, I'm sure we'll find something to unpack because uh, just to cross compare the other movies these people were making at the time with this will be really intriguing. So uh, with that said i look forward to that discussion and thank you so much don for coming on we plugged it about 100 times but his article on slapshot is on 25yl along with a ton of his articles he writes like one or two a week they're always gems and he's all over the place he has his own website but i shouldn't be plugging he should be plugging i think himself as well so i don't botch anything so don feel free and please uh tell people where to find you you bet. Paul and Jordan, first and foremost, thanks again for having me on. This is a blast. Gr- great movie to talk about. Uh, we could usually go all night and crack some beers over it as well. No, uh, you, folks can find me uh, everywhere you search. Every movie has a lesson. That's everymoviehaslesson.com is kind of where I got started. You can find that on Twitter and Facebook as well. Um, I do write for 25YL. That's kind of been the publication spot and pedestal I've been able to kind of be as a published guy. So look for 25YL there. Paul is on that team now and he's doing some good work. I can't wait to see what he does next. I also... Um, 
um, got talked into starting a podcast. So, and through 25 Wells, so I'll, I'll name drop and, and promote the Cinephile Hissy Fit podcast that Will Johnson and I do. We are both uh, 25 Well film critics and uh, we're on our fourth episode. We've got six in the can. So we're trying to record and keep, stay ahead enough to have one a week. And uh, we're having a good time there. It's a quick little 30 minute thing where uh, one person's a lover, one person's the hater. And we compare the movie. We both kind of get our uninterrupted time and then we fight about it for 15 minutes. So not easy little show, something to digest for folks that are into. Uh, this week's new episode is uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League and Tree of Life, which Paul will really enjoy me trashing on, will be next week. So stay tuned Friday for that one. Awesome. Yeah, I forgot to even throw that out there too. I've listened to a few of the episodes. They're great. I listened to the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I have the Justice League on my queue, though I haven't seen it yet. Jordan has. So Jordan, you got to check that out. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that one out. Uh, I have some opinions about that one. <laughs> but absolutely. Uh, everyone, check that out. It's on almost every platform, I'm pretty sure. I have it on Spotify. I'm uh, sure it's on iTunes and all the others. So sure thanks is. thanks so much for coming on. This was a blast. Um, it was definitely fun to do this new format with three people, especially in this movie. It's a hangout movie. It felt like we were hanging out. So thanks oh, a yes. lot for coming on. No, thank you, fellas. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Signing off. Take care, everyone.